Nice. I'm telling you, Frozen Friday sounds good about now. I'm like, you know, man, we should do Frozen Sunday. It'd be so sweet. It is so hot. You have no idea how hot it is. First service, which is usually cold, we do not turn on the heater because we want it to stay cooler for you guys and the rest of the day. I'm wearing this button-up shirt that's gray, and I'm sweating, and it actually started coming. Then so Rick Teixeira goes, just wear your black T-shirt. No one will notice. I'm like, done. So my wife and I, we were uh, on, on vacation last week. And uh, th- this is one of the things when you're on vacation, you've got to be careful what you do because somebody like me just might be there. And so we're going out, we're going to go snorkeling off this little crater thing. And so we're taking this boat out there with all these people. And this kid comes walking around and he's got these Beats headphones on. They're like the really big ones, cover his ears, can't hear anything except, you know, his own music. And he's totally into it. Just, and so he walks up and he grabs onto this railing in the middle of the boat and goes full Titanic. He goes... And I go, where's my phone? Where's my? I go, and I got him from this. I got him right about there. So I'm all, click. My wife's all, you need to knock that off. Here's the picture. <laughs> Just let you know, if you're on vacation, you got your headphones on, look what's going on around you. I also got some video. I will not show it to you because it's creepy, but... <laughs> Let me just say, though, if you are a mom and you want to put sunscreen on your 18-year-old boy, just his back. I've got video. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. My wife's all, stop it. And I'm all, oh, this is too good. (laughs) Oh, I am saved by the grace of God. Thank goodness. Okay, uh, we have baptism classes after every service today, and so we have baptisms at the end of summer on Labor Day weekend. You're all invited to come and show up for that, because it's a big party with a bunch of people. We are going to have tri-tip and butter and bread, because it's... And I know, I know, someone like Chris Hagel's going to be like, I'll bring a salad, whatever. We want to be stopped up for a week after this meal, people. So... Anyway, so if you would like to be baptized on this huge day that we, what we love to do called baptisms and you are a believer and you've been thinking about it or at wondering some questions about it. So after this service across the way in the back, we're doing a 15, 20 minute uh, baptism class, let you know what it is. It covers all the W's, the why, the what, the where, the who, the when, and the who who. It's all there. So go check it out, especially, uh, you know, I'll tell you, uh, a lot of people are like, what does Jesus call me to do? You know, one of the things that Jesus clearly states in the scriptures is that we are to be baptized. Uh, it's, it's not a magical thing, but what it is, it's a, it's a covenant between you and God's people. You are and before a crowd of people saying, I'm going to live and walk and follow Jesus. It's one of the rites that held the early church together. And so we would encourage you, if you have not been baptized and you are a believer, to get baptized. And we would love to be the ones that dunk you. Yay. So, uh, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. Oh, there's a Bible in the back. There is, we, we got more, trust me. Uh, but there's a Bible in the back. If you don't own one, you can have it. See, it's all singular now since there's just one. Uh, do we have more back there, Jared? Laying around somewhere? 
We'll get some. So if you need a Bible, there's some in the back. If you forgot one, you can use one. There's sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, in the sermon notes, you'll have some notes that go along with other stuff than what I talk about. Plus, there's questions on the back for you to ask some friends, your families, people in your gospel community. Uh, and then if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. In Uversion, you can click on Live, and Live will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and questions and all that goes along with today's message. So stand with me for reading of God's Word. This is Micah chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand those days when we wake up and we want to have the evil that we have devised in our hands, that we would open up our hands and let that go and we would simply trust you. That we would uh, be a people who extend your grace and redemption and hope to those we come into conflict with. That we would be the people who live in the kingdom of God and honor you in such ways that you are glorified and your name is made more known in this world in which we live. Amen. Have a seat. Right, so this is Sermon on the Mount, week 21. You can open to Matthew chapter 5. And I know you're thinking, holy cow, 21 weeks in Matthew chapter 5. How does anybody do that? You're welcome. It's a gift. Thank you. Uh, It's actually going to be 22 weeks in chapter 5. But after that, we're going to go faster. Chapter 6 and 7 will be about 11 weeks in both of those. And people say you can spend a lot of time in a section of a book that Jesus spent like one day preaching. I know, I get that, but you have to understand that Jesus, it probably took him all day to preach the Sermon on the Mount, and if you were to take these messages and back them up, you know, back to back, they'd be a little bit over 24 hours, so there you go, it's a day. You're welcome, we know you're Americans, so we're just breaking it up in ADD increments for you. Ta-da! That's what you get. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most popular texts in world literature. It's delivered by Jesus. It's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. It's been taught the world over by teachers who follow Jesus and even some who don't. Uh, Jesus is giving lessons of love and wisdom. Uh, Some people have followed these, while other people have simply admired them. Uh, Some of these people include Gandhi, who said it cut to his heart, including Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Even some Confucianists say that they love the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, not Confucius himself, if he even actually lived. If he did, he'd be dead by the time Jesus was around. But, uh, But what we don't understand is that it's so much deeper than what they see on the surface. A lot of people take it in a bunch of ways that Jesus never intended. Jesus' words have this deep-seated appeal to the universal human condition when we recognize it, that we are lost, that we have dug a pit we cannot get ourselves out of, and God has come to rescue and redeem us. And I think it's interesting that the Sermon on the Mount is a lot of Jesus' simple exposition on Jewish law. And a lot of lawyers today don't even understand that a lot of our legal system is actually based on Jewish law and the things that Jesus said. And today we're going to get to the heart of what was central to the law for millennia. So Matthew 5, 38 to 42, that's what Jesus says. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the most common thing that people take out of that is, you know, turn the other cheek. Now, imagine you hear those words. What would it have been like if you were somebody who was black in the 90s? 1950s, at the height of the civil rights struggle, and you hear those words from Jesus. How do you take those words? Imagine you're a Jew in, the, in Europe in the 1930s when the German persecution is just beginning in earnest, and you hear those words. What do they mean? 
Imagine you're a woman in the workplace in the 40s to the 80s and you hear those words. What does it mean? Imagine you're a Christian in Rome during the reign of Nero or Vespasian or Domitian. How do you hear those words? See, a huge problem with the Sermon on the Mount is we think it doesn't actually fit in our experiences in the world today. But hopefully over the last 21 weeks, you've seen that it totally fits with our experiences today. A lot of us today will experience hatred, violence, persecution. I mean, maybe not as bad as other generations, but we come to the scriptures and Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Do good to those who mean to harm you. If someone's taken your shirt, give them your coat as well. I mean, even if you've grown up in a church and you've heard these verses your entire life, when a threat comes at you or something you don't understand or someone is going to hurt you, those words get thrown out the window. But you have to understand, this is why we take so long in the Sermon on the Mount. It has a trajectory to it. This is why Jesus starts in the Sermon on the Mount with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who's the poor in spirit? Us. That's all of us. We're terrible, horrible people. We are the poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus starts in a place where we understand blessing given from God to us, that God has first come and established relationship with his people. That's where he starts. And he walks through all of these blessings that his people have been given by God. And then it steps out of that into being salt and light in the world, how we're supposed to live. It goes into righteousness and into worship and what true worship looks like. And Jesus takes those things and he starts to now move them into the realm of relationships with other people. And he talks about anger and murder and lust and adultery and divorce and oaths and the words that we use to bind ourselves to each other and what happens when people use words that bind yourself to each other and people break those words and somebody hurts you today jesus gets to the point of that and begins to talk about redemption versus retribution And that's what he talks about in these verses. What happens when justice is hard to come by? When good is hidden behind like a veil of evil? When hatred seems stronger than love? When somebody hurts you? See, Jesus' teaching, it doesn't seem to fit so well with our experiences in the world. And this only leaves us two options. Number one is you just dismiss Jesus as being totally absurd. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It doesn't relate to my life. It's so old-fashioned. No, I don't really care. Or the other thing is we have to reevaluate all of our experiences in the world. And hopefully through the Sermon on the Mount, we've had you be able to do that. You begin to reevaluate all your experiences in the world in the light of the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says. And this becomes our core tension. And so we're going to walk through what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42, moving on our Sermon on the Mount. What is Jesus saying when he says, you've heard that it was said? Well, that's really simple. When he says that, you know what it means? That they've heard that said. Is this, do you even read Okay, that, that, that's what it means. They've actually heard it said. At least three times in the Torah, Exodus 21-25, Leviticus 24-20, Deuteronomy 19-21, Moses gives this command to Israel, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and variations of that. It's this core teaching to Israel that, that came to Moses from God for the nation of Israel. What most people fail to realize is that when this law was given to Moses, it was revolutionary. It changes the world because there's a major problem in the ancient world and the same problem we have today and that is a problem with vengeance and retaliation escalating out of control it's like you insult me i hit you i hit you you cut me you cut me i shoot you i shoot you you run me over in your car you run me over in your car i strap you down and play country music at you till your ears bleed and you go crazy 
And eventually, someone ends up in a hole in the ground dead, because that's the plot of every mob movie ever made. Escalation. You know, revenge is always escalates. Revenge is always tempting. Those are the things we talked about all the way back in the book of Esther. It always escalates. It's always tempting. The story of Samson in Judges 15, thousands of people end up dead. What does Samson say? Judges 15, 3, this time I have a right. Verse 11, I merely did to them what they did to me. Verse 7, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you you. That's what he says, like it's totally justifiable. Retaliation is the issue in the book of Esther. It's the backdrop to Romeo and Juliet, where someone somewhere said an airy word to another, and it just went on and on and on, and ends at the end of the story with the death of those two lovers, because revenge just escalates. In Samson, it starts with foxes in the field, and it ends with people. In Esther, it starts with Mordecai not bowing down, and it ends with a 70-foot high stake in someone's backyard, and somebody impaled on it. It seems that at some point, somewhere, someone gets offended. Somebody gets hurt, whether it's perceived or real, and then that just begins to grow out of control. My wife was in a department store a couple months ago, and she's in line, and she's waiting. There's a girl on the phone in in front of her, and she's talking really loud, and all of a sudden, she said the store just got really quiet, and right when it did, the girl on the phone goes, I hate white people. So my wife goes up, she tells me this, and she goes, I know how that feels. I hate white people, too. (laughs) Sometimes, right? You feel that way? My goodness, people are just horrible. See, when we just think like that, we don't think past that, you know, hatred retaliation is never going to lead to reconciliation. It never can, period. And until we stop seeing people as white and black and brown and gay and straight and Star Trek and Star Wars, and simply see people as made in the image of God first, before our differences, nothing's going to change. It's not bad to notice somebody's differences, good and bad. We are all different, but we are first made in the image of God. That's why Jesus starts the Beatitudes with blessed are the poor and spirit. You're all in the same boat. You've got to understand that. I mean, and then we move out of that into all these other areas. No matter what sin somebody's mixed up in, you start from the place of made in the image of God, because that will lead you to the place of redemption versus the place of retribution. And this is the problem in the ancient world, because vengeance just escalated out of control. Whole towns are obliterated off the map. Still happens today. Rwanda, two people hate each other, and they're driving each other off the map. You have the Israelis and the Palestinians, you have the Kurds and the Iraqis, the Sunnis and the Shiites, it goes on and on. But the story is always the same. It's vengeance out of control. There's a slight somewhere. Someone got hurt, someone got offended, and society gets to the point where they fall apart. So what God does is he steps into the middle of all this and he gives his command that's supposed to put checks into how far people are allowed to go. He tells them an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What that means is the punishment should not exceed the offense. You're not justified in retaliating uncontrolled. It's a boundary marker, a check on how far vengeance can go. It was to preserve God's people and the people around them. Now, today in Latin, what we call this is lex talionis. It is the foundation for almost every modern legal system in the world today. Lex means law, talionis means retaliation, the law of retaliation. It is why when you are pulled over for speeding, they don't execute you. It's why when you sing in a boy band, they don't exile you to a desert island, even though they should, but they don't. It's why our Constitution protects us from cruel and unusual punishment, which makes me wonder why Justin Bieber's music is still on the radio. Just saying, okay? 
this law is designed to set a punishment that fits the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And too many people read what Jesus says in Matthew 5, and they think that Jesus is saying that the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is bad, that there's something wrong with that Old Testament command. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's why before Jesus gets there, in Matthew 5, 17, he says, don't think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's not saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth is bad or evil or unjust. He recognizes the good command by God to put barriers around how far vengeance can go for the preservation of his people. But just because something is good, like this law is good and just, it doesn't mean it's the fulfillment and it doesn't mean it's the best. That's how you see Matthew 5. The law can do some things, but it can't do other things. I'll give you an example. Uh, imagine you lived thousands of years ago and some dude came over and they stole your goat or they killed your goat. Maybe by like staring at it like that movie, like, and it falls over dead. Okay, so, so that happens. Now, the law would prevent you from going and killing that guy for killing your goat because that would be a disproportional response to the crime that you suffered. The Old Testament law, what it did, it prevents one person from killing another for like killing a goat or something like that. But what it could not do is it could not stop you from hating that guy that stole or killed your goat. I mean, outwardly, you could be like, okay, I'm conforming to the law, I'm not killing you, but inside you're full of hatred and malice, and you want that person gone, you want that person dead. This goes back to when Jesus says, you're all murderers, because you hold anger in your hearts. So this is where Jesus goes with it. We understand this. It, it's, it's kind of why people still have a misunderstanding of God today. You know, we, we think that God's always there. He's just waiting to smack somebody, waiting to mush them into the ground and to get them. Longfellow wrote his poem called Retribution. He writes of God like this. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness he grinds them all. I mean, that's people's view of God. He's just waiting to grind you down. When my wife and I are driving back from the airport on Wednesday night, um, nothing's ever on the radio that's good. So, you know, I always play like my iPod. So I'm listening to my iPod radio. I've got like 6,000 songs and it just randomly picks songs. And so it's crazy. Out of the blue, it starts playing Johnny Cash. Who knew I had Johnny Cash on my iPod? The man in black himself. And so, and the song that starts playing is the song that's called God's Gonna Cut You Down. And I went, oh, sermon illustration. Beautiful. But that's, that's the view a lot of people have. God's going to cut you down. That's, that's, what he, that's what people think that God is like. He's just waiting to mush you and push you down. And because we think God's like that, we think we have the right to be like that as well. But if you go back to when we went through the book of Genesis and all the books that we go through, you see that God has always been on a rescue mission for his people. He's always been seeking out his people, always been chasing them down, always been bestowing grace and love and kindness upon them. And so this is what we understand about the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus is doing. And so when he gets there in this passage, it's after everything that has come before it. It's after the blessings and you're to be salt and light and what true worship is like in regards to the law and goes into oaths and adultery and anger and divorce. And you have a choice in how you respond to these things. You can respond in retribution and anger or you can respond in a redemptive way that brings reconciliation. That's why Jesus does the way he does the Sermon on the Mount. And so he starts off with, what do you do with people who insult you? Because when people insult us, we always want to get vengeance back. So he starts, 538, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
It's amazing that that's the progression that Jesus takes there. Now, when the law was first introduced, there's no policeman, there's no constitution, there's no bill of rights. People would kill somebody else for like a minor offense. It's like, oh, you stubbed my toe, death to you, because I'm more powerful than you. That's what people would do. This law, again, limits retribution by teaching proportional justice. But see, where they just thought it was about physical injury, Jesus goes deeper, as he always does. And he talks about emotional injury as well. Like, if you're in a grocery store and somebody makes fun of you because you got the one with the wacky wheel and it's, oh, and you run into someone's cart and like, ah, you know, and they make fun of you because you got the wacky wheel. You don't have a right to run them over in the parking lot and feed their family to cannibals. You, you don't have that right. We all have an instinct when someone hurts us, though, that we want to hurt them back. And the pain that we experience always seems worse than anybody else's pain. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, there's a study that was done a few years ago, and they took these people uh, two by two. I don't know if it was biblical or not, but whatever. They took these people two by two, and they put diodes and electrodes all over them. And what they did is they told the first person, grab the other person's hand and squeeze it. And so they would squeeze the other person's hand. Then after that was done, they say, now, the other person turned around, you squeeze that person's hand back. And so they would squeeze back. You know what they found? 100% of the time, the people that squeezed back always squeezed harder than what was done to them. And so we have this innate thing. An eye plus a little something extra for an eye. We all live that way. And so what Jesus does is he tries to give us another option. You know, turn the other cheek. What does that even mean, turn the other cheek? Well, society in Jesus' day, it's all built around shame and honor. Your left hand is considered unclean. Your right hand, you eat things with, you do things with your right hand, you shake hands, you do things in the marketplace. Your left hand, unclean, because you wipe your butt with your left hand. No toilet paper, so it's just like, oh, wash that off. Okay, so it's dirty. You don't do anything with the left hand. And so Jesus says you slap somebody on the right cheek. How do you slap somebody on the right cheek? Left hand. It's an insult. It's like, oh, poop hand. You know, it's like, it's left hand. Or, or if you want to slap somebody, you got to, with your right hand, you got to backhand them. You only backhand somebody that you would see as a social inferior. That's the only reason you would do it. And so what Jesus does, he takes a step further and he says, this isn't just about someone killing your goat. This is about you feeling insulted. And so when he starts in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with bless. This is who you are. This is who God has called you to be. Your safety and your honor are found in the hands of a loving Heavenly Father. You are to live in the kingdom of God. And so when someone insults you, what do you do? You deal with it creatively. You turn the other cheek. Because if you turn the other cheek, they can't slap you with your left hand anymore. They can't backhand you because your cheek's turned. It's brilliant. It's amazing. The other person at that point, he has to fight you as an equal, which he doesn't want to do because he's trying to make you an inferior. So he has to find a non-violent, non-destructive way to resolve the conflict. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Jesus says, when you get insulted, what's your first instinct? What do you do? You don't run and hide. You don't strike back. You confront the other person with honesty and strength. You be creative. You be patient. You be active. You work towards reconciliation because that is what God is doing in our own lives. People who live in the kingdom of God work towards reconciliation because God is trying to reconcile with his people. It becomes a heart issue and no longer a law issue. It is deeper than the law. It's about redemption. Well, how do you deal with somebody who would use you? Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, again, in this culture, in that day, Roman soldiers were allowed to force Jews to carry their burden for one Roman mile. Now, on the Sabbath, Jews weren't allowed to go more than a mile from their home, so the law said only one Roman mile. And so this is the kind of person who would come and use you, you know, thinking that seeing you not as a person, but maybe as a tool. What do you do in that situation when someone uses you? I know what we do. We go to Facebook. 
Like, oh, my life's so hard. Oh, people are so mean. Oh, everything's so horrible. We're, oh, my Facebook friends. And all your Facebook friends go, oh, thumbs up. Oh, yeah, poor you. Oh, sorry about your life. Blah, 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 blah. <sighs> Facebook. What Jesus does is he says, don't go there. He invites you to see your enemy as made in the image of God. As a human being, a Roman soldier in this culture, usually a young guy, a stranger in a strange land. He's probably poor himself. All he gets is local hostility. So here's an idea. You finish the mile. You look him in the eye and you say, you look tired. Can I give you some more help? Can I go with you another mile? I mean, you want to blow somebody's mind? Mind blown, Ricky Bobby. Right there. Mind blown. Who sends in a tip to the IRS? Nobody. Nobody. Don't, by the way. See, when someone's difficult around us, we automatically want to think of them as deliberately unlikable. Oh, they're just a horrible person. Rather than a real person with a whole backstory of something going on in their life that maybe led them to do that thing on that day or led them to where they are in their life this day. Jesus calls us to remember the person we don't like is also a human being made in the image of God. And so we take some time to imagine how they feel, like what's going on in them. We can also confront them in a way that honors God. Not like, you're a stupid idiot, but you say, hey, what's going on? How can I help you? You're reacting kind of poorly, so what can I do in your life to help you? We ask, what can we do to help that person become the people God means for them to be? How can we show them what the kingdom of God is like by how we live? It stops being law. It becomes an issue of the heart. This is why Jesus says for believers in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The Sermon on the Mount, it's there for us to learn how to live in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the concept of that here and now in our lives. So many people today in churches, they want to say, oh, it's some future event. Oh, it's way out there. The kingdom of God is God ruling in the lives of his people here, now, today. And that goes on into eternity. It starts here and now. You and I who follow Jesus live in the kingdom of God. We do. Let me clarify something this is not about, though, because a lot of people move here. This is, these verses are not about pacifism. At all. You know, when Jesus says, don't resist the one who is evil, turn the other cheek, there's a misinterpretation of this that's led to the idea that when you're attacked, you don't defend yourself. Or when your family's attacked, you don't defend yourself or your country. I mean, I heard that for a really, really long time. Just to be clear with all of you, if you attack my wife, I will bury you. No joke. I live on an acre, I will dig a hole deep. I have friends who will help me, and you will be in the hole. No one will find the body. Just letting you know. Saved by grace. Okay, there you go. In the, <laughs> in the Talmud, it even says if you know someone's coming to attack your family, you anticipate them and you stop them. It was always considered permissible if you were killing somebody in self-defense. It's not an excuse for violence like the movie Shooter, oh, they shot my dog, I'll kill 20 of you. That, that's not what it means. I mean, Jesus even says in Luke twenty-two thirty-six. but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell a cloak and buy one. I mean, it's important that Jesus says for his people that they can actually defend themselves. A lot of this comes down to a poor understanding of thou shalt not kill. The word kill there is the word for murder, taking an innocent life. It has nothing to do with someone who is attacking you and trying to kill you or your family or maybe an enemy soldier in war or something like that. Uh, when he says, do not resist the one who is evil. I mean, could Jesus mean what a lot of people take that to mean? I mean, what if you're being raped? You shouldn't resist? Really? If someone's taking advantage of someone else and you can stop it, you're not supposed to stop it? 
if you put me in your car and you force me to listen to your boy bands and country music, I shouldn't destroy your radio? <laughs> of course I should. Now, if you look at this verse from a Hebrew perspective, okay, because that's what we should, because that's what Jesus spoke in. He's quoting a well-known Old Testament proverb, Proverbs 24, 19. Fret not yourself because of evildoers and be not envious of the wicked. Same word in Psalm 37, verse 1. A modern equivalent in do not resist those evil, it simply would mean is don't compete with evildoers. In other words, don't try to rival an enemy who has wronged you. What does that do? That puts it clearly in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus has been talking about all along. It's all about relationships. He's not telling you to lie down in the face of evil. He's teaching you, don't try and get back at somebody or take revenge. Don't be like Samson who says, well, I only did to them what they did to me. I have a right. I can do this. Jesus is talking about retaliation and revenge. It's like, Say your husband goes out and buys some new electronic gadget, and you go, oh, he spent 100 bucks on that. Well, I'm going to go spend 100 bucks on this. They cheated on me. Oh, I'll cheat on them. Well, they said this to me. Well, I'll say this to them. And it just escalates. Jesus' principle is amazing in how you deal with people you like and you don't like, with friendships and with neighbors, which could be people you like and you don't like. Because he's talking about the fundamentals of relationships. He's not talking about how to deal with the rapist. I'll give you a dumb example. Imagine your neighbor for some reason decides to come to your house and he dumps a bag of garbage on your lawn. What do you do? Well, I Facebook about it. And I say, my neighbor, it's terrible. I tell my friends about it. You know, some people are like, well, I'll dump two bags of garbage on his. You don't go over, I'll fork his lawn. I'll write my name in bleach in his lawn. Just so he knows who did it. You're like, oh, that's a good idea. Don't do that. Okay, don't do that. You know what Jesus says, like, in this context of what you should do? You mow theirs. You mow theirs. You clean up the garbage, you throw away, you mow their lawn, and you go and try and take care of that relationship. What can I do to make this better? How can I step out and make this better? See, each saying, when you understand this, becomes an illustration of how we're supposed to treat each other. It goes to Romans 12, 21, where Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wanting to get even is our natural response, but it's not our responsibility to get revenge. I mean, anger, lust, oaths, if a friend insults you or or embarrasses you by slapping you on the cheek metaphorically or, or in real life, you're not to slap them back, even though you really want to. It has nothing to do with the battlefield or defending against a murder. It's an illustration of how to deal with a personal enemy or even a friend who has wronged you. When evil arises, it's our duty to stand against it. I I believe it's morally wrong to tolerate evil. But our response to a hot-headed neighbor is completely different. I mean, I will give you the best in marriage advice I'll ever give for free. Right now, you should write this down because it's going to save your marriage. I have couples in my office all the time. And a lot of the big issues is they perceive each other metaphorically be dumping garbage on each other's lawns all day long. And nobody wants to go and mow the other person's lawn. It's like, you need to clean up my garbage person. You need to do it. And everybody just wants to throw these things back and forth. Give the best marriage advice ever. And here it is, Romans twelve twenty one. See, I stole it from the Bible. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is how you do it, because that is about reconciliation and redemption and hope. No matter what keeps coming at you, you respond with grace and love and hope. Verse 40, Jesus goes on, And if anyone would sue and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Some people, again, take these verses, and they take them out of context, and they think this is all about persecution. They point to Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And on the surface, we think there's a lot of religious merit to being persecuted for the kingdom of God. Jehovah's Witnesses love it. I mean, you slam the door in their face, like, yay, door in my face. This all goes back to the early 2nd and 3rd centuries when there's a lot of persecution against the Christian church. I mean, you have hundreds of thousands of Christians who were martyred in the 10 persecutions of the Christian church before the Edict of Toleration by Constantine 311 AD. But this problem still persists to this day. Is Jesus saying that there's some type of merit to be gained by suffering persecution? And if so, do you seek it out? I mean, do you hop on a plane and fly to a Muslim country to spend the rest of your life in jail eating bugs and dirt and feeling holy? No, that's not what he's saying. What you have to understand in the context of the idea of persecute, in the Hebrew sense, it also has the connotation of pursue. Okay? So it's like a car chase. Anybody, anybody here alive during the O.J. Simpson car chase? Bronco, white Bronco? Okay. You turn on the TV, and you got O.J. Simpson going like five miles an hour. O.J. Simpson, if you don't know, he was this football player. It's not talking about orange juice or anything. It's like, okay, he's in the Bronco, killed his wife. The glove didn't fit, but he was still guilty. Anyway. Ooh. So anyway, so he's driving along his white Bronco, and you have the cops following him. The cops are pursuing him, so he is being pursued. But the cops following him are also pursuing him. They're both about pursuit. This is what the idea of that word means. And so Jesus is not discussing persecution per se. He's describing those whose chief desire it is for God to redeem the world, for God to use them in the process, that they would pursue this idea of redemption and reconciliation, that we would pursue it. Those are the people that make up the kingdom of God. And the real question becomes, does that describe you? Does that describe you? I mean, I don't think it echoes so much the eighth beatitude. I think it echoes more the fourth beatitude. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People all the time say, oh, I hunger and thirst for Jesus. Oh, I go to church and I raise my hands and I got Jesus t-shirts and I sing really loud and do all things. But do you hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God to save the lost? Is that what you're looking for? Is that your priority? Because if that is actually your priority, all your relationships will begin to change. You will treat people differently. You will seek out reconciliation and redemption. This is what we do by living in the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, 33. We'll get to that in a few months. <laughs> Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's a euphemism for salvation. Jesus' main concern is saving the lost. Luke nineteen ten. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. What was lost? Us. We were lost. See, the kingdom of God is made up of people who want more than anything for God to save the lost and to use us in that process of redemption. When Jesus says, you know, you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, that's rule God more and more in people's lives, including my own. See, when we look at the background of what Jesus said, we see how we always take the scriptures and we always make them about ourselves. We pull out all these little sayings of the Sermon on the Mount and we make them about things they're not about. Persecutions, it's about us. Pacifism, it's about us. The kingdom of heaven, we make all about us. But in reality, it's all about Jesus and God and his rule and his salvation and his life and his purpose and his grace and his goodness and his desire and his truth and his salvation. We must get our eyes off of ourselves and onto God. Scripture is all about Jesus. I mean, Jesus even goes on in this and says, you know, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. People take this out of context all the time. You know that no Hebrew teacher would ever condone giving someone money if it encouraged them in their idleness? Uh, my wife and I were on vacation, you know, a week and a half ago, and she walks over on this, on this bench. She sits on this bench, and there's this guy sitting over here, so I do what the dude thing is. is I walk over, and I sit between them, you know, because he might just be crazy. And he was crazy. So I'm sitting there next to her, and then the guy finally looks over, and he goes, looks at us, and he says, he says, uh, have some money? And so me, my wife always tells me, don't talk to crazy people. But I'm crazy. 
So I talk to crazy people, right? So I, I look over at them and I go, what are you going to use it for? It's a good question, right? Don't you ever wonder? So I go, what are you going to use it for? And he goes on to this whole rant about, oh, my girlfriend died two weeks ago. See that flower in the water over there? That, that's her spirit out there. And I'm like, so what are you going to use it for? <laughs> you know? And I go, actually, never mind. I don't have any cash on me. And he looks at me and he goes, you just don't have the Hawaiian spirit. You need the Hawaiian spirit. To which I reply with, I didn't know money could buy the Hawaiian spirit. And then my wife goes, boom, shut up. Quit talking to the crazy man. And I'm like, oh, I'm the crazy man. And then he flips me off and he goes, he goes walking away. And I'm like, do you know when this was written, give to the one who begs from you? You have to understand, in Jesus' day, this is also showing that it's about God. It's God's heart for the poor. In that culture, there were no social programs. There were nobody feeding people lunch every single day. There were no places to stay. If you were deaf or blind or missing a limb or, or in a wheelchair, where you didn't have a wheelchair, you'd be stuck on the side of the road. You, all you could do was beg. And God said, my people are to help those people because no one else is going to take care of them. And so they would go and they would take care of those people and they'd make sure they had something to eat and they took care of them like that. And he goes on and he says, don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, this has nothing to do with, with your buddy who continues to like borrow money from you to go spend it on booze. That's not what it's talking about. Jesus in this is even talking about relationship. You have a relationship with somebody and that's why they're asking to borrow from you and you do it in a way that honors God. It's all about relationship and reconciliation and redemption and the glory of God and helping people in the right ways. When we understand the Sermon on the Mount and the point of it, it gives us deeper insight into who God is and His character so we can be better living lives that mirror who He is. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is not about us. It's not so we can know ourselves better. I mean, we know ourselves well enough. We've dug our pit deep enough. We know us. We suck. We are terrible people. This is why our God came to save us. And if you have been here like the last four weeks, these last four weeks of the Sermon on the Mount have been very heavy, very heavy. But you have to understand that these verses helped Martin Luther King define his calling to nonviolent civil rights, even as his own home was firebombed. These verses helped the Christian church stand up and help Jews in World War II to keep them safe. Some of them even had a plot to take out Hitler. These verses helped the early church worship Jesus in the face of enormous persecution. And these verses are exemplified in Jesus, who on the cross, dying a brutal, bloody death, says in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I was talking to a guy after last service, and he's got this huge rift between him and his daughter and his daughter's husband. And he, and he starts asking me, you know, so what do I do? This guy stole from me. This guy did this. This guy did that. And he's, and he's really angry at this guy. And I said, yeah, it stinks, doesn't it? Because you're the one who extends reconciliation. You're the one who extends redemption. You're the one who goes out of your way. I said, it doesn't mean you go and condone him stealing from you. You don't say, oh, that's okay. I said, you call him on it. You confront him on it. But you're the one who, are, who is there who seeks out reconciliation first. And he goes, that's really hard. And I go, I know. I know. It is hard. But living in the kingdom of God, that's what we're called to. Redemption. I mean, last week, Eric's message, him and Terry, I mean, wow. Redemption. Extending yourself. Coming together as God intends for us to come together. Jesus spends a lot of time helping us understand who God is. And the most important thing we can do is embrace that understanding. And find out what Jesus actually thought was important for us to know about God. And what is that? It's not about us. It's about Him. God redeems us for His glory. And in that glory, He gives His people joy. 
And I want to encourage you today to take a few moments and ask yourself the question, if God's priority is your priority. Because when you first say that question, most people say, oh yeah, God's priority is totally my priority. Oh, oh yeah, God's totally my priority. If it is, then you've got to let go of the animosity you hold towards the person that you dislike the most. You've got to let it go. And you need to begin to pray for that person, that God would save them, that you would even spend eternity with that person. How hard is that? Is God's priority really your priority? It's why we are still here. You know, it's why Jesus came. The whole idea of the Sermon on the Mount is to help us to understand that God is on a rescue mission for his people. And then once we understand that God has first blessed us, we also become this people who begin to live in this way where we extend reconciliation to those around us. We understand because God has first blessed us, we bless those around us. We live in the kingdom of God to show the world what the kingdom of God is like. And what is it like? It's about a God seeking to save lost people. And it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. I mean, there are people, drive me nuts. Some of them are in this room. Or not. But but that's the idea. You know, we are extending a relationship. We are extending hope. We are extending life. We are to live in the kingdom of God. Understanding what God has first done to redeem and save us. And so we don't retaliate in retribution. We seek reconciliation. And sometimes, you know, when somebody does something that's against the law, sometimes that is even forgiving them as the cops haul them away. But it's still stopping, harboring all that in your heart and seeking out, as far as it depends on us, redemption and reconciliation and hope. I mean, this is, again, what communion is all about. It's the place where we remember that our God came to seek and to save us. And we break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. We dip in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us that our God bled and died to pay for the sins of his people. All the things that separated us from him, he paid for. And so we lay all of our burdens there, all of our animosity towards others at the foot of the cross. And we go and live in the kingdom and extend reconciliation and grace to those around us. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be deacons and elders in the back if you need prayer. I mean, maybe you've got something going on in your life today. And you are in a spot where you're like, I just can't forgive that person. I just can't deal with this. Well, maybe a good place to start is to maybe pray with somebody about it. Just start to talk with them about it. And then move to a place where you start to pray for that person. And then your heart begins to melt and things begin to change. Because by living in the kingdom of God, we live different lives. Our lives simply begin to look different. Uh, there's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because uh, God's given so much to us, so giving is part of our worship. And we have food and stuff in the back. And we invite you guys to grab something to eat like we always do. Like every week, there's always food back there. The reason we do that is so you can connect to somebody else. I mean, maybe you can sit down and ask some of the questions on the back of the sermon notes. Maybe you invite somebody out to lunch or you sign up for a gospel community because we need each other to live this way. I mean, you are saved individually, personally by Jesus. Yes, you are. But you are never meant to just stay that way. God intends for us to live in community. God's priority is for his people to also live in community. God himself is a community. And so he takes us and puts us together. And the best way for us to begin to work through some of this stuff is with the community of other believers around us. We walk through these hard things. I'll tell you, my wife, my, my gospel community, there are people who have the right in my life to come up and say, you're a big dummy. When I hear the word dummy, I'm like, that's me. I'm dummy. Okay, so now I've got to listen now. Because I know that's true of me. 
I have, I have a very hard time with certain things and certain people and forgiving things for, in certain ways. But this is why it's good to have that community around you because it helps us reevaluate, is God's priority our priority? Or do we just simply say it is? Is it lip service or is it real? Because as a people of God, we must live with God's priority as ours. Reconciliation, redemption, hands out, to those around us so we can show who God is by how we live as his children. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to, that we have been delivered, that you are a God who's delivered us from our own evil and our own wickedness. And yet as we begin to understand that, there are so many times that just a few weeks go by and we're right back to where we were before. And we can't believe how terrible other people are. And we forget how terrible we ourselves have been. And once again, we need to understand your delivering of us from all of our own personal madness. I ask that today you'd begin to teach us to be a people that evaluate if our priorities are actually your priorities. And maybe even sometimes how we've confused the two. We all of a sudden think that our own priorities are yours. Because as we constantly see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you're constantly redirecting us back to your intent for how people were to live in your kingdom. Will you call us your ambassadors? And so we go and we live lives that portray more rightly who you are. And that is understanding that the law is only a shadow of the truth to come. The truth that you have revealed to us. So that our hearts would have the law written on it. The law of Christ. The law of love. And redemption and hope. Teach us to be a people who understand our blessing, our salvation, and also more importantly, our calling. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.